Welcome to Strung Out, the podcast that looks at life through the lens of an artist. Your host is the artist, writer, and musician, Martin Lawrence McCormack. Now here's Marty. So glad to have you with us. Welcome to Beatles Talk. I have two gentlemen with me, Tim Golden, expert on everything about the Beatles, and Paul Schneider, who is a music critic and writer on various bands for various newspapers over the years. Gentlemen, great to have you on this podcast. First thing I want to talk about is we just lost a great icon who's not a Beatle. We lost Papa Nez. Michael Nesmith of the Monkees died, yeah. 78 years old, heart failure. And why don't we start from there? In terms of the Beatles, what were the Monkees? The, the Monkees were often called the prefab because they were so consciously constructed. They had auditions and they brought people in. Some of them musicians like Nesmith, who was a fine songwriter and a very fine musician. And some of them were more actors than musicians like Michael Dolenz, who learned to play the drums. So the, the Monkees were somewhat of an imitation of the Beatles and created for a TV show to appeal to young kids. And they fought that prefab thing. That's right. And in a sense, they were in an ideal position to parody and subvert societal norms and so on. They could parody and skewer them because they were on the inside doing that. So it gave them an ideal position. And as time went on, they wanted to start performing and playing their own stuff. As Tim pointed out, Mike Nesmith was a very accomplished. Peter Tork was a, a, a pretty fair musician from Santa Monica, California. When he was hired, and Davy Jones was a singer. Yeah. And as Tim also pointed out, Mickey Dolan started to play the drums, and he turned out to be a pretty fair Drummer, they were a good man. At first, they had the songs written for them by some great songwriters. But again, as time went on, especially Mike Nesmith went to the, the, the studio heads and the producers and said, look, we want to just do our own stuff. We have good songs here. And some of their albums went to number one. Yeah. Some of their songs are classics. One of the things I think is amazing about Michael Nesmith was that he had a charmed life. His mother invents Whiteout. That's right. Yeah. For the typewriter. Yeah. So there's a lot of money. Millions. There's yeah. millions of dollars there. Nine figures. Then after the monkeys, he says, why don't we do these little pop clips? I think was the name he gave them. And it was the pre-runner of MTV. He comes out at the same time with the first national band going back into his Texas roots. And he pioneers the Americana music scene. He's looked upon as one of the founders of Americana music. So the guy, he's going to leave behind a pretty big legacy, wouldn't you say? I, I certainly think some of his songs are classics and, and great. And as Paul said, yeah, the Monkees albums did incredibly well. They're quite competitive. I believe Sgt. Pepper knocked some Monkees album off the, the top chart. They were actually competitive in terms of sales. They did extremely well. And later on, they did some very subversive -ish sort of things. The movie Head was beyond surreal. It was somewhat disturbing, which was interesting. 
again, they were in a great position to subvert the, the establishment because they were right in it. And when you say subvert the establishment, are you talking about the society in general at the time? Oh, conventional society at the time. The Beatles were also subversive. They came, of course, from the outside. They came from Liverpool, which had never been anything. And they came from England, which had never uh, really been had much success globally or in the United States. Top stars of England were just second rate when they came to the United States. So the Beatles also came from the outside, and they were also very subversive. It's just the Beatles came from the outside. The, the monkeys worked their mischief from the inside. You talked about Nesmith and the pop clips and the videos and him pioneering, if you will, MTV. As the resident McCartney apologist here, the Beatles produced videos for paperback writer in 1966 because they weren't touring anymore. And they had to figure out a way to get the music out to the public without touring because they were sick of it. So they made really what were the first videos with paperback writer. And then they did one for Penny Lane where they were on the horses. That was so great. Riding through Liverpool. Right. A very surreal. Yeah. So I suspect that Nesmith may have gotten the idea from watching those. Yeah. And prior to Paperback Rider and Rain, which, by the way, were directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg, there were these impromptu little silly sort of promo films, as they called them, of that go all the way back to Love Me Do, where they realized early on they couldn't be on all these TV shows, but they could send a, a promo, and it was a, sort of an easy way. So, I, yeah, I would say Beatles definitely pioneered the MTV-style videos, and, and, of course, Hard Day's Night contained uh, such things. I think what Nesmith did was he was the first to propose putting various artists' musical promos, uh, promotional films together. That could be. Would it have happened in and of itself eventually? Of course it would, but Papa Nez, as they call him, he was the first to voice it. And uh, truly, I think he's going to be one of these guys that over time, his stature is just going to rise up. Let's talk a little bit about the Beatles. One of the things I like about the Beatles was that they had a healthy sense of competition. They looked upon other bands as competition. They didn't have to. But one of the bands that they thought was a big competition was the Beach Boys. Yeah, Brian Wilson and Paul McCartney were always in competition with each other. That sounds influenced, Sergeant Pepper. The Beatles would hear a Beach Boys song and they'd say, we have to do better than that. And the Beach Boys would go, we can certainly do better than that. What I found intriguing about that is that this competition between these two bands that came from 7,000 miles away from each other. The Beach Boys were from Southern California. The Beatles were from Liverpool, England. Two backgrounds that could not have been more different unless one of them had been from Siberia. Mm-hmm. And, and they came together and, and had this really healthy, as you say, competition that resulted in unbelievable music. Yeah. Unbelievable. In fact, McCarty said one of his all-time favorite songs is God Only Knows. He just loves that song to death. And Brian Wilson said, well, I like here, there, and everywhere. They just, they were in competition, but they loved each other's music so much. Yeah. Did they ever collaborate, though, Wilson and McCartney? No, to my knowledge, never. No, wasn't Mike Love in India? Yes. With the Beatles, with the Maharishi? Yeah. I think that's really the only time that any Beach Boy and any of the Beatles ever really got together. 
Okay. Let's take a little break here, and we're going to listen to um, some of my music because copyright issues being as they are, if I play any of the Beatles, I'll probably get sued. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Right. The Apple lawyers will be all over you. Yeah. <laughs> the Apple lawyers will be. <laughs> we're talking to my Beatle experts here, Paul Schneider and Tim Goldich on Beatle Talk. I'm strung out. Go to martinmccormack.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll get the latest blog from Marty, information about upcoming podcasts, and what's happening in the gallery. That's martinmccormack.com. Everybody wants their car to go faster than the rest. Everybody wants their car to go faster than the rest. Everybody has an elephant that wants to be relevant. Everybody wants their phone to have the latest apps. Everybody wants their phone to have the latest apps. Everybody has an elephant that wants to be relevant. Gotta come return to the pack of them. Everybody 
everybody thinks their elephant's the biggest in the room. Oh, everybody has an elephant that wants to be relevant. Yeah, everybody has an elephant that wants to be relevant. Yeah, gotta come to town to the back of them. Gotta come to town to the back of them. And we're back on Strung Out talking about the Beatles. There's no way of getting around the fact that the Beatles still and probably will always be the seminal pop band. But on the break, you were saying that you have seven degrees of separation between Brian Wilson and Paul McCartney. I do. My ex-wife, Julie, went to high school with a chap named Scott Bennett, who had a band in Chicago called The Following Melendez. And Scott became quite a noted studio musician. And he ended up collaborating with Brian Wilson on a couple of albums and producing his albums and co-writing some stuff. And then he went over to England and he played in a benefit concert for George Harrison. It wasn't the concert for George. It was something previous to that. It might have even been a Prince's Trust concert. But I remember him telling me about being on stage and Paul McCartney being right there. (laughs) <laughs> and how it just absolutely blew his mind. Unfortunately, Scott ran into some trouble and spent time in prison, but we won't talk about that. There is one guy who, who I know anyway, we, who so played I, with both of them. You're that close to yeah. Wilson and McCartney. I'm, I'm holding my fingers an inch apart, and I'm, I'm that close to the both of them. I'm this close to Brian Wilson through Paul Von Mertens, right. who, who does right. the arrangement for him. I, I've tried to get Paul to get Brian Wilson to at least sing. That's Put him under a pseudonym, sneak him in so we can laugh about it down the road. But let's get back to talking about the musical craft of the Beatles. Michael Nesmith in The Monkees was the principal songwriter Mm -hmm. of that band. One of the things that I noticed in the documentary, I guess you'd call it documentary, Get Back, is that George Harrison was writing songs, but he was always like the odd child out of that Lennon-McCartney kind of relationship. Why didn't they just collaborate with George and make it a threesome? That's a bit complex, but George was the youngest, and it took him time to develop as a songwriter. John and Paul wrote most of their bad songs when they were just kids, and so by the time they got to EMI, they were already somewhat seasoned, and they very rapidly grew as songwriters. Those are difficult to break in. You have Lennon McCartney in the band. It's not easy to write up at that level. And it just took George a long time. There was a lot of inertia. It wasn't until Abbey Road that John and Paul realized, oh my God, George has risen to the point where he's our equal. They just didn't realize that before. He'd always been a younger brother. And there was just a lot of inertia around that. And George was writing all these songs. In raw form, these songs are not necessarily so impressive until they're finished. Like we we saw on the Get Back documentary. A lot of these songs, Get Back itself, begin as just a germ of a song. And if you just play it with an acoustic guitar, it's, it's not finished. So it wasn't until some of these great George Harrison songs got really finished 
like on Abbey Road, where they're really built out and perfected, that John and Paul went, oh, my God, those are the best songs on this album. I think it's interesting, though, that you don't have either Lennon or McCartney taking Harrison under the wing, so to speak, and saying, hey, listen, George, sit down. I'm going to work with you on this one. You don't have a Harrison. A Lennon Harrison. You don't, but John did help George write, so he taught him how to finish songs and gave him help with lyrics. And they did help each other. Even though they didn't get the songwriting credit, there is that part in Get Back where George is talking about writing this song something, and he's been working on it for six months. And finally he says, what's the word, Paul? I'm trying to think of the word. And John says, well, just, just keep repeating a word until it comes to you. They did help each other. And speaking to the inertia... Um, it's manifested itself in almost complacency as well. I think that them, John and Paul always seeing George as a little brother, even when George was coming in with stuff like All Things Must Pass, which, by the way, should have ended up on that album. They just, they didn't take it seriously. And you yeah. can see the way Paul was looking at George in the documentary when George was trying to make suggestions about songs. And I thought they were good suggestions. And he's a professional musician. He's a well-regarded guitarist. He knows his stuff. Yeah. And Paul just gave him a sort of a sleepy-eyed look yeah. and blew him off. Yeah. And I think finally until George said, I'm leaving the band. And in his diary, what did he write? Rehearsed all yeah. day at Twickenham, quit the Beatles, went at, home, had At fish and chips. Yeah. And it took two meetings to get him back. And then after he came back, only after he came back, was when they started to really take him seriously in parts two and three. Yeah. Especially when Billy Preston came in. Let's take a little pause right here because we got a lot more territory to cover on this issue of Beatles Talk. And you're listening to the Strung Out Podcast. This podcast wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the gifts of support we receive from listeners like you. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not send in your gift of love? Go to martinmccormack.com and click on the donate button. Across a shifting, setting desert Where the sands can blind Upon a camel, I the explorer Searching the vastness of my mind The winds blow hot and strong No respite from the sun I find Shadows stretching out so long Across the fastness of my mind My camel moves along slowly no need to rush across the dunes Somewhere out there An oasis in the light of the moon 
blow hot and strong No respite from the sun I find Shadows stretching out so long Across the fastness of my
And we're back with the final part of Beatles talk here. And let's talk about the fact that when Billy Preston shows up, the Beatles all of a sudden get religion. Isn't that the case? Billy Preston was, of course, an incredibly fine professional musician and a very amiable guy. Like George Harrison himself would say, as soon as you bring a guest home for dinner, all the bitchiness vanishes around the dinner table because nobody wants to present the family as you know contentious or bitching at each other. Yeah, he had a profound influence in causing the whole band to get more disciplined, to rise to Preston's level. Preston's coming in there. He's playing with the Beatles. He's super enthused. He's really on it. That's fantastic from his point of view. Oh, my God. So the other Beatles, you know, have to rise to the game, and they want to press him. So the whole vibe changes pretty radically. Suddenly they become a band. They got a purpose. They got focus. They got ambition. And it certainly helped that they knew him already from their days in Hamburg when he played with Ray Charles. And in fact, there is a, a part where George talks about you know seeing Ray Charles and seeing Billy playing piano and how great he was. Yeah. And it was George's idea to bring him in. Just like it was George's idea to bring in Eric Clapton on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, if for no other reason, to stop the bitchiness, to right. make sure everybody was on their best behavior and that they really were professional musicians who <laughs> could really play because Eric Clapton was the truth. He was God. So the same thing with Billy Preston. And as Tim said, Billy came in and he had the chops and he sat down and he started playing and John looked at him and said, you're in the group. There was a conversation. John said, I think we should bring Billy in as the fifth Beatle. And then George says, why don't we ask Dylan? And Paul finally <laughs> said, it's bad enough with four. <laughs> but yeah, Billy Preston really raised the bar. He brought a level of musicianship and you could just see it in the instrumentation and the arrangements just rose. Marty, as a musician, you know it, you see it. When there's uh, synergy in a room yeah. among a bunch of musicians and it just clicks and everyone just gets in the groove, gets in the pocket. The minute Billy Preston sat down at that electric piano, that's what happened. It transformed the, the band. It transformed that documentary. It transformed that album. Do you think Billy Preston could have saved the Beatles if he did become the fifth Beatle? Only if he had kicked Yoko out of the room. <laughs> I, I want to save that for, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because that in and of itself should probably be our next podcast right. talking, Billy, about, talking about Yoko. To answer your question, Billy Preston would have made the Beatles in the 1970s the best band around still. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, oh, I have a very mixed feeling about it because I have a deep intuitive sense that the Beatles needed to end, that the 60s were over. And I'm so glad the Beatles did not carry on to the point of playing Vegas and there was no Budweiser too. I think they went out on top, legendary. Maybe they had another really great album in them. It's hard to say. Yeah, Billy Preston could have been the, the grease in the wheels that kept them going. And maybe that might not have been a good thing. It's, it's really difficult to say. You can only speculate because... Because who knows what might have come. But what did happen was the Beatles went on top, unassailable, 
and never suffered any. And if I could just quickly add, all what we do have from that is that them playing on each other's albums. George playing on Imagine. All three of them on Ringo's album in 1973, the Ringo album, which is just a tremendous album. But not all at the same time. He almost got them no. all at the same time, but he didn't. Paul wrote a song for him and played on a couple of songs. And John and George and Ringo all played on that album at the same time, a couple of tracks, but Paul did not join them. The song that I, I wrote for the Mr. Marty show called, I referenced the idea the greatest story was never told. And that was the story of the Beatles staying together and making it through the seventies and through the eighties. I think it would have gotten even more interesting because they were coming up against so many different things. If they could have worked creatively to address the issues of what was happening in England as you get into the Thatcher years and you get into punk music. Would the Beatles have been able to weather that? But I don't think any other 60s icons really, they didn't remain at the absolute zenith the top. None of the others did, Stones or Dylan. Who knows? The Beatles might have been the exception. During that punk era of the late 70s, the Stones were still putting out albums that sounded like the Stones. And the Who were still putting out albums that sounded like the Who. And they were called Dinosaurs. And mm -hmm. I'm with Tim. I'm glad the Beatles didn't suffer that fate. Well, they had pretty fair solo careers afterwards. So yes. not to worry. Let's leave it on that for this podcast. I want to thank Paul Schneider and Tim Goldich, my Beatles experts for Beatles Talk. And always grateful to have you guys listening in on Strung Out. Thank you for listening. For more information about this show or a transcript, visit martinmccormack.com. While there, sign up for our newsletter. See you next time on Strung Out. Choice, giving us that.